Welcome back to the EDM Podcast. My name is Connor O'Brien. If you're new here, this is a show where we interview artists, producers, and industry experts, really anyone who we feel can help you grow as a music producer. Now, this episode is part two of a conversation that I had with the artist Pierce Fulton. If you haven't already, check out part one where we dive deep into Pierce's background and journey with music. Now, this episode is all about production. Pierce breaks down his full production workflow, discussing how he starts tracks, how he decides if a loop is good enough to turn into a full song, and what that actual process would look like. He also talks about what his favorite synths and effects are, what techniques he used on some of his biggest songs, and what his approach to layering and filling out mixes. Pierce drops a ton of practical knowledge in this episode, so get ready to take some notes. With that, let's wrap things up and get to the interview. Here's the EDM Podcast with Pierce Fulton. All right, so with that, let's slide a bit over into production. Got a few things I want to ask you, but first off, I would love for you to just talk a bit about what your production workflow looks like. Um, right now, I'm a bit of a mess with how I'm making music. Um, I, I've used Logic primarily for a long time. Um, and I'm like, you know how you can like take the same route to work every day and then you start going like, you just start doing stuff really like habitually and it's like you're not even thinking about it you're like you're thinking about something else in the world but you're still taking a ride on that street and like you could have hit someone because you're not like thinking about it you know mm -hmm. i have kind of developed that habit with logic where i just do stuff and i'm not thinking about it and i'm not like going does that sound better i'm just doing it because i've done it on a million other songs and so as a result i've been starting to use ableton a lot more um it also helps that I, I have this new project with my friend that's all on Ableton. And so I just like had to learn really quickly how to get good at it. And I'm actually pretty good at Ableton now. Um, it's, it's hard for me to go from that idea to full song by myself in Ableton. Usually it helps when my friend is recording and I, he's like kind of at the control station, I'm playing instruments and he's recording it in and starts to arrange it. And then I take the project back and kind of start mixing it and stuff like that. But yeah. um, I've done a few songs that have, that have gone full, full process from you know nothing to a song and uh yeah mostly doing it to just like shake up my brain because i end up just making the same sounding stuff in logic and that kind of bothers me um and so i uh yeah i i used to have a lot of like things i did really uh routinely with how i started songs but i've just kind of thrown all that out the window because it's just like i don't think it's very healthy to do the same thing every time right now my only motto for making music is make a song if you have the idea for it if you don't have ideas then don't do it like i've spent so much time just like opening plugins and playing some notes on keyboard and flipping through sounds and messing with parameters and whatever and it's like it just leads nowhere every single time like after so long i've learned like don't just sit there if you don't have an idea of what you want to do yes of course there's magic in like playing with something and being inspired by something that then creates an idea that happens with a lot of my songs but like you can abuse that really quickly um if the idea doesn't come quickly don't abuse it and so i try to only act on if i have an idea and if i can see something like fully arranged in my brain you know not just like i get i get lost in like the loop uh kind of window a lot and uh i know usually early on if it's gonna stick in a loop form or if it's gonna be arranged into a full song so <clears throat> i can make that decision pretty quickly now but uh yeah it took a while to to realize that like it, it, it either feels right and you know what you can do with it or it it's not quite hitting it and 
that's been my approach with starting songs. And like back to what I said, like, you know, the 50th out of 49 songs, you know, or ideas, sometimes that's the one. So when you're talking about knowing where an idea is going to go or what it could be, is that you building out a loop and then maybe spending two, three hours on it and seeing where that finished product could be? Well, it's like when you, and I, I hate that I even still do it. Like I still will set like a 16 bar loop and just like make stuff based on that. I mean, it's the easiest way to, to, to develop ideas, but it's also the biggest trap because then you go, oh, I don't know where this is going to go. And you kind of just forget about it. Um, but usually like I'll get like 30 minutes into like an idea that's a loop. And I go, even if it stays in a loop for like two years, I'll know, like, I actually have that right now. I have a song that's probably like 32 bars of loop, but I know the whole song in my brain because I've like written vocals for it over time. And I like, I know how it's going to be arranged. It's just a matter of putting the time in to record the vocals and arrange it. Um, but there's also a ton of loops where I just, I like, can't see that. I can't visualize where it's going to go and like how it's going to sound. And that's usually the deciding factor for me when an idea is good or bad, if I can see it going into an arrangement or not. How do you know when to call it quits on that? It may seem like an obvious question, but we get a lot of people asking when to throw away an idea and when to kind of push through it. So it's, it's literally like, like I said, if I can't see it as a full song, you know, like even if it's just an instrumental song, like there's, there's a tremendous amount of value in instrumental songs. It doesn't have to have a vocal, but like if I can see the pieces of it in my brain, then I know it's going to be a good song. If I can't see that, like if I can't see an intro, a verse, a pre-chorus, a chorus, you know, whatever, drop, blah, like if I can't see that, then it's usually not going to be a finished song. I can usually tell, I, I think this is just unique to my experience, but I can usually tell very early on if something is going to be finished because I just, yeah. I get this like strange feeling where I go, okay, I know that this is, this is better than other things. And like, I, I, I know that more ideas will come from me doing this it's like a trust almost but the hard part of that is trusting that your bad ideas are bad and that you can move on you know and not Mm -hmm. just like abusing them and trying to make them work and i've done that a lot but it it, you know i also i i learned i do something really strange recently i like i make an idea and i I do this with a lot of other things other than my musical ideas but i i make an idea and i kind of like actively forget it i try to like almost completely push it out of my brain after i make it and work on something else or do something else and then maybe like a week later i go back to it and listen to it and it's almost as if i'm listening to it for the first time because i'm getting these now like gut reactions of like oh no that baseline shouldn't have that note in it oh okay that lead should have this resolution instead of that and it starts to take shape and so i do that a lot where i'll make an idea and just like try to completely forget about it and not think about it at all and i've gotten pretty good at that for some reason and i do it with like <laughs> I do it with like decisions and plans too. Like my, my girlfriend hates it because I'll, <laughs> I'll be like, so we think of tacos. And she's like, we said tacos early today. And I'm like, I, I'm sorry. I just, I do the same thing with my music where I like forget it. And then I think about it again. And if I feel good about it still, then it's a good decision. Um, yeah. but yeah, just, just simmer in your subconscious for a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I do it a lot with my, my creative ideas. Um, I've kind of had like a similar experience with listening to my music after I'm like done working on it in a session where let's just say I go through an eight hour session, I'll export it. And if I'm really excited about it, I used to just listen to it nonstop on SoundCloud, mm. but then I would just get so freaking burnt out from the idea yeah. that I wouldn't be able to walk into it fresh in the studio. So 
Now my rule is when I'm like done with a song, I export it, don't even listen, think about it for another few days, kind of in the same way so that I can come into it fresh. And it kind of seems like for you too, you're almost working on the idea in your subconscious so that when you go back in, you've got some ideas about where to take it. Well, actually, no, I, I try to push it completely out of my brain altogether so that when I listen to it, it's almost like I'm listening to something new for the first time. Like, like my favorite thing is when my friends play me an idea and I just have all these ideas and then I just go off of them. And it's almost like it's like throwing up and you just like get it all out, even if it's not good. Like you just throw it yeah. all up. And then when your stomach's empty, you're like, OK, now I'm going to forget about this again and come back to it in a week and then I'll throw up again. And so it's like it's really crude to look at it that way. But that's how I that's just how I work. I just like throw as much as I can out until there's nothing left. It's huge. I kind of call that my sketch phase where yeah. there's no filter for what yeah. I'm putting in the DAW. And then after three, four hours, kind of look for that seed, at least what I call it. And for me, that seed is, okay. is this going to turn into something bigger? It seems like you kind of have that same mentality. Okay, can this turn into a full track? Is there something here? And can I see the finish line with it? Yeah. Yeah, that's I mean, that's very similar to what I do. So I'd like to spin it back for a sec. You kind of talked about how you took that course in high school. You're watching some tutorials on YouTube. What was that process for you to be able to get to a point where you were professionally releasing music, especially given the fact that this was like 2009, 2010, and there weren't that many good resources online? Well, I think something that I slightly regret now is that I just put out everything I made. I didn't care if it was like good or bad. I just yeah. like, I uploaded it and I, and like, they, they're still there. You can go to like some of my earliest songs on SoundCloud that's say, probably say 10 years old now. And uh, they don't sound very good, but there's like honesty in them and there's melody. Like, I, thankfully I've always kind of known how to write melodies and so like it's not like they just were like complete nonsense the melodies have always been pretty strong and then it's just the production that's always been developing um and uh yeah i i, did, I didn't know what i was doing for a long time and um like the, the class i took in school was really helpful for things like understanding how a synthesizer works like what like going from uh an oscillator to routing through like a filter and an ADSR, like an envelope and then to a, an output, you know, like learning yeah. about the fundamentals. If I hadn't learned that, I don't know when I would have. But then yeah. like, for example, I didn't really truly understand what a compressor did until like five years ago. You know, mm -hmm. like I, it took me a very long time to understand like, oh, okay, it's reducing all of this so that then you can expand after, you know, and it's like it, yeah. it, it didn't, it didn't like I, I had put it on songs and I knew what it was sound, what it would sound like, but I didn't know what it was technically doing. And so having those classes really helped me because it, like you were saying about even songs, it like planted the seed that then I just expanded on. And same with like learning guitar when I was younger. Like if I didn't play guitar when I was younger, I probably would have had a hard time writing melodies in my early time producing because I just had a kind of awareness of how a melody should resolve and how a chord progression should move. Not like I'm proficient in theory. I'm, I, I know a few things, but I, I'm not like a skilled, educated music person in, in theory. And so it's like, I just kind of like used my ear and trusted my gut. And the same thing with, with engineering. I didn't really know what I was doing, but if it sounded like pretty close to what I wanted, I was like, all right, whatever, I'll go with yeah. it and, and move forward. And so I think having kind of that blind confidence was, I think that's just honestly the, the secret to how I even got heard at all for the first five years of my careers. I just had blind confidence. I was like, all right, I'll put this out. Yeah, sure. I'll play a show. Like I played my first show. And I had to look up how to use CDJ2000s like the day before on YouTube because I'd never used CDJ2000s. I only had ones that had like CD players and I didn't know what all the other buttons did. Yeah. So it's like not that big of a jump, but like 
I just have always been like, yeah, sure, I can DJ there. And then I just figure it out. And I kind of like that. I think that's that's how I perform best is when I'm kind of under pressure. And so uh, maybe that's the, to round back to all of this trouble <laughs> of being so free of labels and shit. Yeah. Maybe I just work well under pressure. Let's talk a bit more about kind of more of like a technical side of production. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that a lot of producers struggle with is filling out a mix. It's part layering, part mixing. Something that's interesting about your music is because you have such a varied catalog, you can't really use the same tools and you know presets and sounds every single time when you're trying to make a mix full. So what does that process look like for you? And do you have any advice for people who struggle to make a mix sound as full as some of their favorite artists? Um, yeah, I mean, starting out, I used a lot of like, um, like channel strip presets and stuff like that. Like, you know, if I had like a synth sound I liked, I was like, load that synth sound with the same compressors and the same EQ settings and blah, blah, blah. And like, that was easy for like, creating a sound that I liked that stuck around, but it also like pigeonholed me into like not learning too much about why it was doing that or how it was, excuse me, or how it was filling up the mix. And so um, I kind of, I take the like really long way still, it's really stupid, but like every time I have like a new guitar track, I completely start from the ground up and throw on a new compressor and, you know, dial in the settings and throw on a new EQ. And it's like, I I don't really throw on presets that much anymore of like channel strip stuff. As like crazy as it sounds, it's just practice. Like filling out a mix, it's the same. It's very similar to like cooking. Like you can overdo seasoning your food or you can overdo putting sauce in a dish or or Mm -hmm. overboil something or undercook something. And it's like, you can do the same thing with with mixing. You can, you know, leave out like too much sub from your kick or overcompensate with your baseline blah 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 and it's like each song is going to be a little bit different and you have to just remember that like it's not going to be the same process every time but you're going to have those same kind of triggers and gut reactions in your ears like like whether i'm making a song that's 128 progressive or it's like 95 kind of hip-hop or whatever i don't know yeah. There, it's still got to have a kick that is going to cut through. It's still got to have a bass line that is supporting but not taking over the kick. It's still got to have some chords that aren't drowned out but not overpowered. You know what I mean? They all have the yeah. same. It's the same way that like every dish you cook, a, a great chef is not going to like oversauce one dish and undersauce one. They're all going to be like roughly plated the same but just have different ingredients and have different mechanisms for how they got there. And so that's what creates a beautiful dish is it's well balanced. And the same thing with music. It's It's like... It's not rocket science like in the way that you place them. It's just practicing placing different sounds. And I'd say the, the, the biggest issue I ever run into is if like, like for example, I'm, I'm working on this project that uses a lot of lo-fi sounds, like a lot of cassette recordings and like um, even iPhone recordings. And something I run into there is just like having this like extra layer of like scuzz from just like noise you know what i mean like i've never dealt with as much noise i've dealt i've thankfully been able to use a lot of digital audio where it's very clean and so when you have a lot of noise everything gets worked harder because like you know your master compressor or limiter has more information that's going on in that range so you're going to be basically overcompensating for that range of sound and so like maybe your low end suffers you know what i mean if you don't take Mm -hmm. care of that area and so it's it's all kind of like learning on the job like you every song is different and and I think that's like the beauty and also the curse is that you just like, you can't get into a pattern of doing the same thing every time because every song is different. Every key changes the way that your song is going to work. Like if your master chain works in G on this song, it's not going to work very well in A on a different song, even though it's very close, you know? 
because you're bumping certain frequencies and cutting other frequencies. Like you can't just slap a master chain on and expect it to work because it's not going to compensate for the same stuff. So diving deeper into your workflow, is there a normal process that you use to go from the loop stage to a full and finished track? Like the process of taking it from idea to full song is kind of like separating two different processes, which is like what we talked about before of like um, kind of just creative, uh, like throwing stuff at a wall and seeing what sticks. I don't know the best word for that, yeah. but um, just constant outflow of ideas versus being like, oh, this is good or bad. Um, and there's that process. And then there's the like sifting through and digesting and being like, okay, this is this has the potential to be something. And then you start to get into arranger and mixing mode um, in addition to probably more um, like creative ideas uh, going on in that. But usually you have like your meat and potatoes and you start really pulling it all yeah. out. Um, and the, the, the two separate parts of that process are really important to me because like, for example, in my creative process, I don't think about any of the like technical rules of things. I don't think like, oh, you shouldn't put you know, reverb before distortion. I'm like, if it sounds crazy and awesome, I'm yeah. going to just do it. And like, so when I, when I was like starting out, I actually used to do all sorts of like really ridiculous stuff that makes no sense. Like I would like put reverb on something and then EQ it and then put sausage fattener on it and then like put another compressor. I don't even know. I would just do like ridiculous stuff. And then sometimes it would just sound really cool and unique. And like, I wouldn't have achieved that if I didn't just try strange stuff. And like, so I, I like that in that process of creation, kind of just going blindly with, with whatever knowledge you have of like what's quote unquote technically right. And just making stuff, whether it's like, you know, I, I use a lot of distortion just to, to get overtones in, in whatever I'm working on. Um, even though my music doesn't sound very distorted, uh, I like kind of hide it. I don't make it the yeah. most, you know, prominent player of the song, but I try to like make a lead or something kind of distorted. And, uh, so it's, but then the thing is, is when you, when you get into that next phase, it's, you have to put back that hat on of being like, okay, there's a lot of stuff going on in this distorted file. And now I got to start yeah. reducing some of the low end. So it's not taking up my base area and, you know, kind of finagling the highs. So it's not super, super intense. And um, yeah, so like knowing when to, to take off one hat and put on the other is, is a big part of stepping out of that phase. But also it's just like good to, to have those two hats instead of have only one yeah. train of thought. I feel like the idea of distortion and saturation, not for the kind of classic, obvious, overly distorted tone is something that took me a while to get my head around. I still barely know it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, it still kind of confuses me when people are like, oh yeah, that's a lot of saturation. I'm like, oh wait. yeah. What I was going to ask is like, what do you normally think about or what, or rather what tools are you using when you're trying to add just a little bit of like warmth to a sound? You don't want it to sound quote unquote distorted, but still give it some extra harmonics and density. Let's see. I've I've used um I've used decapitator quite a lot. I, I like decapitator on drums. I use like one preset on decapitator just because it's so good every time, and then I just like pull back the mix. Um, I think it's like drum fattener two, and it okay. like it kind of I think it has like a little bit of the high end filtered off. Um, but it just adds kind of a, an overall like body to everything, but also reduces the high, so it's not really like too crazy um but if you mm -hmm. pull back the mix like so it's in parallel and it's not just um completely as an insert it sounds really good i use it just to like sometimes it's like even um a phantom like feeling where you're like oh yeah it sounds better and you take it off and it's <laughs> yeah. like oh it's it's the same but um yeah i i do that a lot on drums i don't do it so much on my chord or like 
kind of body melodics, if that makes sense. Like I, I'll do yeah. it on maybe bass lines if they need a bit more harmonics, like if, if it's just like too shiny and they need just something to fill out the range a bit more, um, I'll, yeah. I'll do some distortion. Like for example, I actually, I weirdly use um, Silent for my sine waves a lot just because I like had this one preset that's like this really, really uh, overdriven sine wave that I just like kind of yeah. made by accident. And it has like this weird compression setting on like with Silent's compressor. But it sounds really good and so like ev you know how like you, you when you're starting out you're adding like maybe a sine layer to your bass and you get into certain keys where it doesn't sound very good and there's not that much body because you're yeah. like maybe in like i don't know b or something you know like a, a, mm -hmm. a key that doesn't really sound that good uh in sub frequencies um this preset just kind of works for most i sometimes have to play around with you know you doing different octaves or choosing different um uh, you know, like like rearranging my chord progression so there's a more impactful first hit. Yeah. Uh, I don't really run into that as much anymore because I'm not doing as much like sign driven stuff. But it's it's definitely something to be to be aware of because it will help yeah. you in the end to to know that like harmonics can really help assign uh, and and help your your overall low end if it's feeling a little bit like it's not hitting as hard as you'd like. Um, and mm -hmm. it's it's a really basic thing, but it, it's you have to always remember it every song you make and uh, i don't i don't i'm not a huge fan of like oh this song doesn't work in the key that i wrote it in so i'm just going to transpose it so it sounds better for the low end i think that's kind of like if the song is is really nice in a key just try to make it work with the tools that you have um mm -hmm. and if it absolutely sounds horrible then yeah maybe transpose but like i don't know i like keeping it in its original vibe just because it's there for a reason and if you wrote it naturally that way then might as well keep it but yeah, that's where I'll use saturation or just overdrive um, and just distortion for harmonics. But um, often what I do a lot is I just distort stuff that's just, I just like randomly will have bouts where I distort stuff and see what happens. So like um, I just mm -hmm. put out a song on my last EP called Cold Water and um, I just was like fiddling around on my acoustic guitar and uh, I like, I think some of the percussion is me like knocking on the body of the guitar and then the main riff is kind of this like finger plucked riff, but it's not very clean. It has a lot of like accident, like they're almost like ghost notes because I kind of kept them in beat, but like, you know, fingers kind of clacking against this, the strings and, you know, like movement of your hands. And I never edited those out because it just kind of fit with the groove. But then I was kind of just like, oh, I wonder what Trash 2 would sound like on this. So I just like throw a Trash 2. I do this a lot because Trash is like, uh, Isotope Trash 2 is like this really powerful intense distortion plugin and so like it has flexible. all these yeah. it's amazing it just like makes everything sound crazy um and i like it because it has all these like um convolution type things where you can get like amp sounds and space sounds so you're basically getting mm -hmm. like a, a like it's almost like a convolution reverb but just for like a room sound um to emulate like the sound of an amplifier but they have all sorts of other stuff than amps but the, the drop on that song, Cold Water, it kind of sounds like a distorted synth, but it's actually just the same guitar riff as the verse or whatever, the break. Um, but just, I was like flipping through trash settings and I was like, whoa, okay. And like yeah. all those like ghost notes and those kind of like accidental hits ended up becoming these really cool, like, I don't, they, they had some harmonic content so they they like triggered the distortion in a certain way that produced even like these tones that i didn't that aren't in the actual melody so like the the yeah. the space between the chords produce like this i guess it's like the feedback or the you know 
emulated feedback uh, mm-hmm. and it like created this whole riff and I was like, whoa, this is the coolest accident that I've come across in a long time. So that's where I really yeah. love distortions where it like affects things that you're not expecting it to affect, whether it's like feedback sounds in silences or um, it's just, you never know. Cause when you're distorting audio, like especially if you're recording or using it with recorded audio, um, there's a lot of hidden stuff that can come up from the surface because there's a lot of content in that file. Do you feel like that's one of the main ways that you try to make a sound from a synthesizer more unique and interesting? I had a podcast um, last week with the producer Doom and he was talking about what he does to make a super saw sound less generic and like an 808 sound less generic. So is that something that you consciously do if you're like, hey, I've got a chord patch, it's coming out of silence, we've got saw waves, so does everyone else, what can I do to make this a bit more interesting? Well, I like I said earlier, I never really do it on chords or even like sustained bass notes because through the process of mixing and getting into the final stages of songs, it's a lot easier to deal with clean sounds. So like if I'm distorting something, it's going to be like one main thing. Um, So like in Cold Water, it was that guitar. And then like in my song, Wind Shear, it's that vocal thing that I do on the like whatever drops, Um, even though the the guitar is kind of distorted in that too. yeah. Or I have another song called Echo Lake and that lead is also like this, not really like super distorted, but mildly distorted lead. Um, but I leave the the rest of it pretty clean unless it's like some subtle saturation or something like that for just more warmth or a little bit more body. And um, yeah, like I, I try to focus on one element being distorted. So it's uh, like usually a lead and then it's because then if it sticks out there's a point for it to stick out you know because it's a lead if it's the chords it can sometimes overpower unless it's really subtle but i like i said i don't really do much subtle saturation because towards the end of the song like you're processing especially with electronic music you're processing it so much that you know like heavy limiting can bring out a lot of crazy stuff in something that sounds pretty simple you know what i mean especially when it's clashing against other sounds so i try to keep try to keep it under control but like that's why I talk about the two hats thing. Like in the creative part, I'll distort a lot and go kind of crazy. And then when I start to arrange and, and get into the mixing zone, I start going, okay, was is this too much or is that too little? And like, I kind of make those decisions as the song is forming and I'm going, okay, if this lead is distorted, I'll keep these chords a little bit more mellow and not as heavy on, you know, similar frequency ranges and all that. And uh, mm-hmm. someone explained to me mixing early on is like kind of like filling a bathtub it's like you only have so much room and you got to just choose where you put what like what you put where and you can't just like overfill it with water or else you, you end up with a lot of mess. I really like the way that you think about priority and focus when it comes to mixing. Everything can't mm-hmm. be big. You have to choose what are the things that I want the listener to focus on and how can I accentuate that and how can I put everything around it to support it in the best way possible. Yeah, and like I'm I'm not really technically trained at all in audio engineering like i've just learned everything on the fly and like you know like when i took those classes in high school it wasn't really about mixing it was mostly about like create like synthesis and like how to make you know a loop or like how to get a midi you know progression recorded and then quantizing you know what i mean like those kind of basics we weren't we kind of got into some um, technical stuff with, with engineering, but not that much. Um, so I kind of just learned as I made songs and, and that's the other thing is that when people are having a hard time, like getting a mix right or something like that, I, uh, it's hard to, to understand that you just have to keep doing it. And like, 
you end up just learning like it's it, it's like practicing anything whether it's like uh you know sport or uh um a hobby like the more you do it the more you're familiar you get and then you're able to adapt to whatever scenario you're in and so like you'll know that a certain type of kick works like i know that for me my kicks in my dance songs aren't very long like they don't have long tails because i've learned yeah. that long tails can just get really tricky and some of my earlier stuff does but as a result they sound really boomy and really like yeah. you, you can't really distinguish the baseline against the 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 bottom of the kick and that's something i just learned over time that and and you 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 like it's not guaranteed that one technique will work on any song you have to always be open to whatever you've learned thus far whether it's something you did early on when you were kind of naive and it's it just works um because like uh, someone i worked with once said if it sounds good it is good it doesn't really matter how you got there and if you're doing yeah. something crazy and and it breaking the technical rules so to speak uh it doesn't matter i mean if it sounds fine unless you're like you know things are phasing and and clipping and like that's technically not good because then you'll yeah. have a a file that is not of the the best quality that you can produce but if everything is sonically okay it doesn't matter how you got there it just just matters that you clean it up and make it sound you know like it works do you feel like you have any other tools outside of the ones that we've talked about that are to some extent essential or at least a core part of your production and mixing workflow um yeah let's see uh Thankfully, I'm recording this on Logic so I can look at my stuff. Um, <laughs> some plugins I use a lot. Like, I, I recently got, um, well, not recently, it's been probably a year or two, but uh, this company, Spitfire Audio, does these free plugins called Labs, and yeah. those are really incredible. I'm sure a lot of people have caught onto it now, but um, if you haven't, they're really amazing and they're all free. It's basically like single instrument, like native instruments type situations where you get like one piano and it just has really nice recorded audio and really nice uh miking and, and also like the ability to add um some reverb and stuff so it's pretty simple because it's just like a few knobs and faders whatever for just overall control of what you're playing um but the 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 quality of them is it's really really good so i use labs a lot um I just got Hive 2 when that came out from uh, Yuhi, and that's a really mm -hmm. cool plugin. Um, it's just kind of like a silence on crack, which is cool, um, yeah. with wavetables. And uh, I like Serum. I really like Serum. It, the thing with Serum is I like my music, I always make really crazy stuff that's like too crazy for something I would make music out of. You know what I mean? I just like create yeah. wild sounds, and I have really fun. It's almost like a game more than I can actually use it. And like, granted, I know I can use Serum for simple sounds, but I just end up going down these rabbit holes of making these crazy sounds. But I do love it just for the fact that it is a really intuitive and like wonderfully laid out wavetable synth and just two oscillator, whatever, with a sub synth. So I really like that. Um, with that in mind, do you design most of your presets from scratch? Um, no, I mean, like, I, I'm, I'm no uh, stranger to like just flipping through presets and just trying to get ideas based on that. Um, I yeah. think that that's totally fine. That's the whole reason my presets are there. And I think it's kind of silly if you limit yourself to being like, I only make my stuff from scratch. It's like, it, it, you know, it's the carpenter, not the tools. Like you just, you just yeah. use what you can and create what you can based off of that. Um, but I, I like, for example, like when, um, when Logic acquired Camel Audio and then made their own Alchemy Synth, 
that has some of the coolest presets I've ever heard in my life. Like I flip through that sometimes and just like get crazy ideas based off of like, sometimes you'll be going through these synth sounds and you're like, okay. And then there's like this drum loop thing that happens and you're like, whoa, okay, cool. And so I'll sometimes yeah. bounce that to audio and then like chop that up and do something crazy with that. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I'm no stranger to using presets. I think it's perfectly fine, but it is fun. Like I love that I spent the time to learn serum and, and how to, you know, make the most of it so that I can just, create crazy sounds from scratch because uh, it is fun there's something like i think i think what it was was when i started out like since like um fm8 and massive kind of intimidated me because i was just like trying to get really good chord sounds i wasn't trying to like create crazy sound designy things um mm -hmm. so i never really dove in with those but uh yeah i i i like I like flipping through presets and then kind of customizing them to whatever I need. It, it's rare that I just use it and it works, but sometimes yeah. it does too. Um, I, I think it's totally fine. But more and more lately, I'm trying to use less MIDI and trying to bounce more to audio and also record more audio because there's something about the like permanence of just like deciding on something and then being done with it that's really appealing to me. Because I, I, I can like, you know, keep tweaking something or keep checking different sounds or trying different plugins or, you know, I, I can do that endlessly. So it's nice to just be able to be like, yeah. okay, I'm done. But, uh, yeah, the, the main plugins I use, I use, um, I recently updated Spire and Spire updated and it actually has a nice new interface and, um, a few new little tiny features, but maybe, yeah, some like macro knobs and stuff. But, uh, I really like Spire. I really like this synth called Surge that just, um, some people redeveloped and put it out for free. Surge is really cool. I, I something I, I I found this out from like a Tycho Instagram story is um, Monarch the Native Instruments Reactor uh, yeah. module. It's like a really good Model D emulation, and like I have the Arturia stuff, and like I'm kind of pissed I even bought the Arturia stuff because the the Monarch is so good compared to it. It just has that body that like yeah. an actual Moog has, and it. Uh, it's just a little bit more clean on the interface, and so I really like that. Um, I love all Yuhi stuff. Like I like Repro, <clears throat> Repro One and Five. Um, Diva, I've kind of always like tried it, but I've never really fell in love with it for some reason. I know a lot of people really love it, but uh, I actually, you know, what's a nice little hidden gem I discovered is, um, you know, Sugar Bites that did like Effectrix, that that plugin that yeah. everyone used in like 2012. Um, they have this plugin called Egoist. That's incredible. It's like, how do I explain it? Let me open it. It's kind of like, uh, oh, I can't open plugins while I'm recording because my computer doesn't like that. But um, it's basically like a little like 16 step sampler slicer thing. It, it almost reminds me of like a, a SP1200. I think that's what I'm thinking of, like the emu yeah. old hip hop samplers. It reminds me yeah. of that um, where you have like 16 steps and then these faders dictate what slice of the step you're playing at a given time and then what pitch and stuff like that. Um, but in addition, you can add like these really like kind of just fun generic like 303 baseline thing and this um, really simple drum machine. So it's really good for ideas. Um, and especially where like I, a, a lot of what I do right now is I'll record myself playing like live piano, like either to my computer or onto a cassette or to my iphone and then yeah i used to open ableton and just drag it into like uh simpler or you know uh, something like that where it can slice up by transient or or by mm -hmm. you know a certain length of audio and then i just kind of like play around with uh 
ideas based off of that, like almost like a sample sample driven idea. Um, but this plugin egoist does a really cool kind of different style of that where it's um, a bit more um, sequence driven. And so I, I like it. It's, it's kind of bizarre, but it's really fun. And I just discovered it when it was on sale, like a year ago or something. And so I use it sometimes. I haven't really like used an idea from it yet, but so far it's fun to play with when I need ideas. Totally. Seems like a very fun, creative tool. And just looking at the interface, it looks like um, Ableton Live's simpler, the like slice mode, just on steroids. Yeah. And it's a little older, but like, it's cool. And some of the sounds it comes with are really cool. And I, I see, I'm a big fan of like messing with things like that to just come up with an idea. And I talked before about how like, I don't really love to sit with my, you know, workstation open if I don't have an idea. But sometimes I know that like, I'll run with something when it hits me in the face. And so I'll, I'll open a plugin like Egoist or like another great one is Omnisphere. Like Omnisphere has just these sounds that go, you, you'll play and be like, oh my God, that's the coolest thing ever. And then you just come up with an idea because maybe it's like some mandolin tremolo thing that gets you thinking about a rhythm. And then you're like, okay, I have a rhythm in mind. And that's, that's kind of stuff that I, that's one of my favorite experiences is when you're just kind of like happen upon a sound that makes you just think of where it can go, you know? So that's a big part of my process, I'd say. Given how long you've been producing, have you picked up any new mixing techniques or concepts within the past few years? Yeah, um, well, I could talk about a bit about how I've started recording a lot more audio and, you know, doing my vocals and then also um, yeah. my mixing stage. Because uh, I, 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 I do this thing where I bounce my stems into, like, groups. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people do this, but, like, when I'm mixing a song, I kind of mix as I go. So, like... Even if I'm in the you know 16 bar loop phase, I'm still like EQing hats so that there's no low end from the hats, or like you yeah. know like modifying a clap a little bit so it's not clashing with things. So I'm already in this the you know the EQ mode from the get go, um, so that when I'm like fully arranged, I'm like pretty mixed when I'm fully arranged, which is nice. It's not like I finish an arrangement and then I go okay now it's time to compress and EQ. Like I like to hear roughly what the end result will be in the process of making it. And I know that that's not super, or it, it wasn't super common because back in the day you like made the song and then you mixed it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's because when I started out, I thought that you had to like make the song from like 0, 0.00 to the end. Like I thought you had to start with the first beat of the first drum. Like you couldn't yeah. jump ahead. And so I made all my songs like that. And so for a long time, my intros were like really intricate and like really, I put a lot of thought in them because that was like the beginning of my creative phase and so i would get my ideas yeah. by like hearing a loop like an intro loop and some sort of droney atmospheric thing that would then inspire bass lines and leads and whatever and so uh because of that i mix on the fly a lot but what i like to do is especially when i'm like a little stuck on the mix and maybe like my kick doesn't sound right against my bass or you know my leads are are, are competing with my chords i what i'll do is i will pull everything into groups and then bounce them out as like what I call macro stems. So it's like, I'll have my all my chords in one thing. I'll have all my leads in one thing. I'll have my kick, my sub, my basses. I'll have like high, high drums, which I consider like hi-hats and like kind of more like, you know, in the higher range of things. And then more yeah. like um, percussive drums, whether that's like toms or, you know, snares and stuff like that. And sometimes I even do snares on just its own channel. Um, because having the ability to be like, okay, my snare is not not really punching through as much, so I just pull up the entire stem that is all of my layers of snares. Because sometimes, as ridiculous as it is, I have like seven snare samples going on <laughs> because one thing is covering 
like I could be a lot more um, simpler in my process, but sometimes it's like I just find a sample for a snare that works on simply just the high high range of things because it has like a certain crisp quality to the top that the yeah. body snare didn't have. Um, and I do a lot of like mono and wide stuff, so you need to have multiple samples for that most of the time. It's like if you want mm -hmm. a wide clap on top of a really mono tight snare. But when you're trying to like adjust things, you can obviously like pull it into a group, but I find it's just easier to separate the process sometimes when it gets really complicated to just a new project with seven to ten stems of just your main elements. Uh, yeah. And then mixing there, it's so easy because every change, you're not going crazy. And then, you know, like if you make a bunch of changes, it doesn't like mess up the whole vibe of your song because you can just pull the snare back down. It's not like you change the way that all the snares are mixed together and you, you lose that kind of initial impact that you achieved when you first made it. So that's a big thing I like. But uh, other than that, yeah, I, I've been recording a lot of my own stuff, which has been an interesting trip because it can like kind of uh, put you in your place with how you are as a musician. Cause you, you know, like if you produce music, chances are you've been putting a lot of time into your craft as a producer and you've been learning a lot about working on the computer. And so if you perhaps played music before then you kind of lose your chops, at least in my experience, like I, I'm not nearly as good as a guitar player as I, I could be if I had just played guitar more and produced a little less, but, with how I've gone in my career, I've done a lot of producing and some guitar playing. So, uh, you know, the first few times recording myself, whether it was playing guitar or singing or piano or now drums, which I've started recording, um, it's definitely like, oh, geez, I'm not very good. But um, just like everything else, you have to just keep trying and like also keep changing your technique. Like I was recording drums and I would do like... You learn a lot about like mic techniques and stuff, but it's similar to what I was talking about before. It's like anything goes. If it sounds good, it sounds good. I know some people that use one microphone on drums and it sounds cool. Yeah. But I happen to have like a kick di dynamic mic and a like SM57 for the bottom of the snare. And then I put like this, I think I have a Neumann TLM 102, which is just like a really generic, but of the nicer side of things, uh, condenser mic. I find it works really well on percussion and especially like symbols and stuff like that and you know snare tops and whatever but i know some people that do completely different mic setups but i was recording all three of those into logic which i would then like comp because i'm not that great yeah. of a drummer so i have to like kind of chop things up and that process was really annoying because i always had three audio files so instead i started running from my mixer that i have i just have an old live mixer that has like a stereo out so what i do is i like dial in the drums on three channels in the mixer and then I just get like a stereo file on my computer which is pretty easy and and you can't like chop things up as meticulously but and you can't like add a you know like for example like trigger to the like snare layering plugin or whatever from Steven Slate like I can't really do that because you don't have your snare isolated but it's kind of one of those things where if it works it works and if it yeah. doesn't it doesn't I don't stress too much about it um, that's just been something I've, I'm learning with recording audio is like you can go with all the kind of conventional ways of doing things, but I think you'll ultimately get kind of overwhelmed. I mean, at least I do. Um, like, for example, sometimes I just record with my iPhone mic on voice memos drums because it has this really cool kind of lo-fi but yeah. compressed sound that sometimes sounds really cool on a song and sometimes it sounds awful. So it's sort of just like, you know, every time you try it, it can be different. So I always just try whatever feels right at that time.
same with guitar. Like I, I have a guitar amp and sometimes it sounds really cool to record it from the amp with a microphone and sometimes it sounds awful. And same with going DI into Logic. Like sometimes I like just having a really clean DI sound and then I can add amp emulators or, you know, you know things like guitar rig or whatever. And uh, sometimes that sounds great and sometimes it doesn't. So it's just, it all depends. And, and it's cool to have the option to do whatever, um, whether it's doing something direct like bass or recording a bass amp if you happen to have one. Um, I don't have one, so I just always go direct. But sometimes it sounds good and sometimes it doesn't. And it's, that's the, like, kind of beauty with audio is, like, recording um, is it's sort of just... There's a lot of external factors that can affect what's going on. Like sometimes you could just be using a bad yeah. cable and then that sounds bad that day and you don't know. You use a different cable the next time you try it and you're like, oh, cool, it sounds good. And that's that's just like one simple thing that can go wrong. But you could just be like low on your level of your preamp and getting a huge noise floor because you're yeah. overcompensating on something else. Or You know what I mean? It's like, it, it's fun because it's it's sort of like the Wild West when you're so used to working with plugins and things being kind of at a set level and with no noise or any sort of problems. Like I, I, I sometimes get crackles from like static or, or something and yeah. you just have to like learn how to deal with it. Do you feel like there's any other lessons from working in more recorded audio that you've in turn applied to your more digital production? Sounds that you get either from sample packs or from synths are like, you know, VSTs are usually pretty out the box ready to go and you're not going to run into problems but like recording audio there's just the nature of audio is there's a whole spectrum of sounds that can occur yeah. given whatever you're doing based on the position you were in when you recorded it um based on the distance from you to the mic like sometimes when i record acoustic guitars and i'm too close to the mic you get this like booming weird overtone that just ruins the whole take and then in that case, I just I just go, okay, I'm going to try it again another yeah. time. And it just wasn't right today. And, you know, I don't like to be too um, strict on myself and be like, it has to be this mic and this position. I just kind of like go with what I do the same thing with my, like the way I cook food. I don't like really stick to a set recipe or anything, yeah. which is silly sometimes. But like sometimes you get these beautiful accidents that you're like, whoa, cool. I added that. And it like, you know, added a whole new flavor or like you know i used a little more salt than i normally do and and this thing cooked way better because it was you yeah. know there was less water in it and so um yeah i i, I kind of do the same thing with audio which can sometimes be counterproductive but you learn better i think by trying outlandish things sometimes whether it's like you know adding a room mic to something or like i just recorded my guitar amp yesterday for the first time in a while and i did two mics instead of one and it's like Sometimes you just test it, and if it sounds cool, it sounds cool. So for you, is that just going with wherever your intuition takes you and just trusting your ear from there? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's back to that whole process of, like, trying out whatever and in whatever way and then putting on your mixer hat and going, okay, what's going on here? Are there weird frequencies happening? Is there phasing going on? Is there, yeah. you know, you, you just have to, like, analyze. But I think it's it can be restricting to be too touchy about that from the get-go it's like just try stuff and have fun with it and if it works that's great then if and if it doesn't try something else the way that i always try to simplify it is at the end of the day the only thing that makes you different is your taste and if you don't know how to yeah. listen to that and to encourage it your music's not going to be as unique and as interesting as it could be yeah taste is everything because everyone can record a guitar and everyone can get really good at guitar and it's just what you do with that once it's recorded 
how you present that to the world is is what your unique voice is. Only so many notes that you can play, you know? We get a lot of beginner producers that ask us questions about production that really just come down to the aspect of taste. Like we had somebody going through one of our courses mm. that were like, hey, I'm like working on my first original production. Like, should I use a vocal or not? And it doesn't matter. It's like, do you want to use a vocal? Yeah. It might be tough, but that's part of the process. If like that's what you want out of it. That's something that I always try to instill in beginners and intermediates really too. Like at the end of the day, that's all you have is your taste. And if you can't learn to trust that, you're not going to be able to get what you want out of music. Totally. I, I 100% agree with that. And, and sometimes I run into that where I go, oh, this would probably do better with a vocal. But I'm like, no, but I like it as it is. This is like the intention I set out with this song. And like sometimes it can be hard to just trust your gut and, and be like, yeah, this is what I like. Um, or on the flip side, one of the worst feelings is when you're like working on an instrumental song and you're like, I know a vocal would do well on this, but you are like too scared or too lazy to like go through the effort of doing that just because it might intimidate you. But the reality is if you never try, then you never know. And so if you, if the, if the idea is there, it's best to just see what you can do to do it. Even I have failures of songs like where I just go, okay, that wasn't great. So I move on to the next one. You just, it's all part of the process. And I don't think that ever goes away. Um, but like back to recording and stuff, like I'm, I'm recording this podcast on a USB mic that I found that's really nice. And I recorded a few of my first vocals on this mic and it's, you, it, you know, to, you could play it to, to 20 people and they wouldn't really be able to tell the difference between this mic and a really nice mic yeah. because that's just kind of how it goes. And you learn that certain mics have certain qualities that are cool and that you are, you know, like the sound of like a Neumann U87 is really interesting. And, um, but uh, for the most part, you can't really tell when there's a lot of other stuff going on. So I wouldn't be like intimidated by the price point of jumping in with like nice mics and, and preamps and stuff. It's like try out like a simple USB mic and learn what your DAW, like Logic has great compressors in it. It has great, you know, sort of great EQs. And like it's, it's more fun to just experiment with that than to feel like you need to jump in with super professional stuff in order to get a professional sound because you don't you can you can make the most out of anything that you have um if you're creative enough even if you have a really bad quality mic you can do something that might be like lo-fi and cool it's it's just what it, whatever you want to do with it um and you know i know when when filmmakers are like you have an iphone you can shoot a motion picture with it and like i sometimes think that's kind of silly um but I also agree with it. Like, if you can be creative in the way that you use it, then maybe you can make something that would end up in a movie theater. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I know there's there's some, like, really famous musicians that their first releases were recorded on, like, their computer's in internal microphone. And it just had a sound. It sounded very, like, innocent and, uh, you know, kind of naive. But there was something cool about that. And that's why I think I've gotten kind of addicted to recording audio versus flipping through plugins uh, is you create this kind of moment in time in your song. And then every time you hear it, you remember exactly where you were when you recorded that sound, whether it's your voice or an instrument, your, you know, I have recordings of me like smacking my legs in songs just cause I was like, I don't know, I can't think of a drum pattern I want. So I'll just play it out on my legs. And then I put it in the song. And then every time I hear that, I, I remember being like, wow, I just did that. And it sounded cool. What advice would you give to somebody that has been in the DAW their entire music career aren't really comfortable with instruments and want to start incorporating more recordings and potentially some acoustic instruments into their workflow, what advice would you give to that person that's scared to take that initial leap? Don't think that you need to be some crazy skilled musician to record 
audio and especially like record yourself playing instruments because I have like a saxophone that I don't know how to play at all, but I record it one note at a time and I just practice that one note a bunch and I'll just keep playing it and recording it and recording it. And then I can just go in and chop it up and make it sound like I know how to play saxophone. And it's like you, because that that's the beauty of like getting into production so heavily is that you can become like the biggest trickster ever. Like I'm not that good at singing and I've gotten away with it yeah. because I know how to process my voice pretty well and i know how to like comp myself so that it sounds somewhat like it's one take but in reality i do like a million takes of my vocals and it's like horrible because i just train myself to sing badly and then i just take the best bits of it but that's yeah. just what works for me right now and you know i hope to improve but that that whole process can be applied to anything like same with drums i'm not that great at drumming but this new project that i'm starting i think i drum on almost every song and I've just found ways to either chop audio or even use like warping in Ableton to to help because I just know it's going to sound better. And I'm not going to I'm not going to like put on my yeah. pride shirt and be like, I'm too proud to use warp. Like I, I if I'm not in time, I'm going to fix it. And if it makes the song sound better. So I, I totally use those tools because I'm not that great of a instrumentalist. And um so just because you hear someone else that sounds really good, they're probably using tricks too sometimes. You know, you, don't, you never know. It's just like test it out. And if you can get it sounding good, then it's awesome. And, and you're going to be really happy that you, you tried something out of the box and you tried something human to put into your, into your songs. Because what happened to me when I was making a lot of Progressive House is I missed a, a human connection to my music because it was so digital and so on the computer. And so I found a lot of um, joy in just recording sounds whether it was instruments or drums or just even my own claps instead of looking for a clap in a sample pack i just record myself clapping a bunch of times layer it and then i have myself in the song and, and there's it's kind of cool you add some personality to your music i love that idea for two reasons one for what you mentioned earlier which is it's more tactile and fun yeah. to do it where it puts you in a place you're able to like remember when you recorded those individual parts and on the other side it's a way to add more organic human movement to your own original music yeah if you're playing a guitar if you're singing if you're recording yourself crappily playing drums and warping it later yeah yeah recording your own shakers is highly underrated like the amount of times i've looked for just like i'll be like in a groove and i don't really feel like i have time to record something and i like look for a shaker loop or a tambourine loop and then i just go and record it and i'm like okay that sounded a million times better i should have just done that 10 minutes ago um with the like $10 shaker that you can get off Amazon. Yeah, I think I got like a three pack of like, I have them right here. Yeah, I have like soft, yeah. medium, and then hard. And then I have like this big bar one that I, I never actually use because it's too thick. But yeah, they're great. And sometimes I use two of them and sometimes I use one of them. Um, but uh, it, it does add a certain personality to your music. And yeah, it, it doesn't matter if, it, if no one can tell the difference, but to you, there's something... And I, that goes back to what we talked about before is like, if you can inject as much love as you can into your music, it, it only helps you. And it's only going to make this whole experience better for you. When you, if, if a song of yours starts doing really well and you're excited that you're getting some traction on your music and you hear it and you're like, I recorded the shaker for that. Like that's me recording it. And you can hear me like accidentally burping at the end or whatever. It's really cool. It's this thing that lives on in that song. And I think I've grown to appreciate my music more when I've injected more of myself into it. One of my most successful records in the background is more of like an ambient texture that's just a recording from a baseball game that I went to. 
and you can like hear my dad quietly talking in the background. And I think it's so funny that there is like a decently popular record on Spotify that has my dad's voice in it. <laughs> yeah. Like a small personal thing. Nobody really cares. You can't really pick it out, but. But it's always going to mean something to you. And that's, if you can find a way to make it mean more than just being a song, that is a win in my book. Yeah. And that, that's really important to me. And I feel like that's an underappreciated part of being an artist. I think a lot of intermediates are told just to like put their head down and to like work on music, get through as many tracks as you can. But once you hit that point where you want to start having more of that personal connection, getting out the music that you want, and then having that go somewhere, it's helpful to start thinking about it in more of the traditional concept of music, which is to express something. Yes, and if you're able yeah. to create more of a human connection with the art that you're creating in a DAW, at least in my experience, and it sounds like in your experience too, you're going to have more fun with it. And the end result, there's a good chance that it's going to end up being better because you're bringing something new to the equation. And it's, you know, like, especially with how things are going with like sample packs and stuff. And I, I have nothing against sample packs, but the more that people use them, the more that everyone's going to start sounding the same. If you can add something that's completely unique that only you like, you know, I have claps in my new songs that are one of a kind claps, you know, like I recorded it for that song yeah. and they don't exist anywhere else. And not that it that is like a huge thing and a huge element in the song but it's at least something unique to the experience because you know sometimes i listen to new music on spotify and i'm like oh there's that clap from that sample back again and it's not a, it's not like it's a bad thing it's just that it, it kind of dates the song to me it, it makes it, i have this association of oh i've heard that before and it, that it's not that exciting to me but if i hear some like gnarly like iphone recording of a clap that like takes over the mix every time it hits i'm like whoa that sounds really cool because that's unique and different and kind of gnarly and and that kind of goes back to an idea we talked about earlier, which is allowing yourself room to be creative. Yeah. And like you talked about you recording in the studio being like, hey, I'm going to try to like put two amps on this guitar or two mics on this guitar mm. amp. That's allowing you the chance to do something different and to have a unique and interesting tone that you aren't able to get from a sample pack or, you know, maybe the same guitar rig that everyone's using. Yeah. And, and the thing that a lot of people forget is that you know, it's pretty hard to record like a full band and get it to sound really good just with no hiccups. Like I've tried that before when I started out like recording a band and it's hard. You got to know so many techniques and you got to know how to work yeah. with just raw, purely raw audio throughout the whole process. And um, that can be tricky. You know, this is an electronic music podcast. So I imagine a lot of people on here make electronic music. And so like the yeah. beauty of, of infusing some live recorded audio into electronic music is that it's about like 10% of the sonic spectrum that you're injecting audio that you've recorded into, you know what I mean? Or, or the song, like the makeup of the song, yeah. it's maybe 10, 20% of it, unless you're going further. And, you know, I've gone into the like 50 to 60% side of things, but even if you're going that far, you still have the, that remaining percentage of electronic or, you know, um, digital audio that can help kind of facilitate that because you're not just stranded on your own with audio that you're dealing with. You, you can compensate with whatever you're lacking in your audio. You can kind of, you know, I, I double up like my live bass a lot with just like Hive or something, you know, like I'll find like a really nice kind of generic sawtooth bass line. But like say on Hive, they're, the way that the filter works, it sounds really nice. Or the way that the like, you know, filter uh, envelope on that bass, I just like it and it sounds cool. Um, so that on yeah. its own might sound kind of boring, but when it's paired with my, I think I did that on my song, Better Places. If you listen, you can hear both me playing like a Hofner bass and then also this, this Hive bass that I'm talking about. And um, 
that is like the the secret formula to me is that if you're lacking one thing, you can make up for it in what you already know. And that for me was just some experience in electronic music. An idea that you mentioned earlier that I want to touch on again is just leveraging what you do know. And for most of you listening to this podcast, it's going to be your ability to manipulate audio in the DAW. Yeah. Um, like you mentioned earlier, like even if you're not a good guitar player, strum one chord at a time, stitch those together, and then you're going to fake that you're a good performer. I think um, Elenium talked about how he used to do that in his earlier productions where he would just do one chord at a time, let that ring out, and then record the next chord. And that got him far enough to be able to convince people, hey, it's an actual guitarist that's playing here. And that's why I don't regret the fact that I spent so much time learning <clears throat> about production because... The more you learn, you just become a better kind of magician. And like, it, it is kind of this little trick. You know, the amount of times that I've just like chopped audio and I've gotten very good at fades and logic where you just can't tell that they're, you know, granted there's probably older songs of mine where you can tell, but in more recent years, I've just yeah. gotten pretty darn good at covering up any sort of cuts or like comping. Like, you know, my lead vocals are usually a, a, a comp, which is just, if for people that don't know, I think probably stands for composite, but like it's basically you record like your first verse 20 times and then you can go through and choose like the best words or phrases or even syllables or just inflections. Like sometimes I take like the t from us from a take that is for like take, you know, and maybe that the tone of one worked, but the like initial transient of another one worked better. So I will pair those together and I've just done enough fading and crossfading and logic where I kind of know what what works and you know back in the day there would be like some little bump sounds not quite pops but it's just because i didn't know um you know where to put the crossfade on certain things or or how long yeah. to to drag it out and and so like you just learn from from trying it out a bunch and uh testing different techniques and sometimes even no fade is better than having a fade it's just all per chance um yeah and so I'm not proud of it because I would love to be a, a technically better performer and singer and whatever and musician, but like for right now it works and you know, I can only just practice and do it more and, and get better as a as a player. And I've I've started doing songs where I do full takes and it's really cool and it feels really fun and um but it's all part of the process. Love that. So any last things you feel like you want to touch on? Um, well, if anyone is a huge fan of my progressive house stuff and is curious what I used for all that. I used a lot of Spire and I used a lot of Silent and I used to use quite a bit of Nexus and I used, um, I think that's about it. Like Nexus, Silent, Spire. And I was not afraid of using presets. I, I, I especially use like very basic presets, whether it's like, you know, just like a, like a poly synth preset that I just will start messing with and, and getting interesting sounds out of by, by like, like, for example, I love adding like a pitch envelope to things on silent. So you get like this little attack sound. Um, so you just learn these tricks and then you keep yeah. you keep adding those to sounds that you discover. And then you kind of add your personality into whatever you're, you're working with. Um, um, and like, for example, Inspire, um, I got actually my lead sound for Kuaga by accidentally turning on the arpeggiator for a, like this lead sound I was messing with. And... It just like did that stutter sound and then like that was the seed that i had for that song where i was like oh okay cool it does like this because it was like on i think it was on like 30 30 second notes and but then the notes that were playing the melody had like the hold function on it so it sounded like 16th notes when those notes would happen but the reality is that the arpeggiator yeah. was on 
30 second notes. So it was going very fast. It was going like, and so then I, I actually ended up doing like four different instances of Spire because I didn't know how to extend, I didn't know if you could extend the, the arpeggiator. So I just like did four different channels of the same preset and customized the lead to fit every one. Yeah. So like that is like a happy accident where I was just messing with the sound and then I turned on the arpeggiator and it happened to be on 30 second notes. And I was like, whoa, cool. That's an idea. When you were working on your more progressive house stuff, outside of the sense that you mentioned that you use, what types of uh, processing would you use kind of in post? Well, what I do a lot for that is a trick I, I need to use it more is I actually turn off a lot of the internal effects on sounds I'm working with. Like if I find like a good chord sound on, on silent, I turn off all the reverb and delay or at least reduce it to almost like nothing because I like to have really dry building blocks and then I fill that space with something unique, not like reverb. So, so in the case of Kuaga, I did this thing where, um, the like main vocal that goes, Oh, I took that and I put, I think I put like H delay from waves because it has like this, there's some of the like quote unquote analog presets on it are really cool and have this cool filtery tail. And I, I think I did like dotted eighth notes of a delay tail with that sound. So I took that sound and I exported the tail, like the, the, the sound with the effect on it and the tail of it specifically, because when it starts to get into that filtery zone and I took a, like, I think a one beat chop of that, or maybe not even, I did, I did even more like a syncopated da, 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 da. And I just repeated that. And that goes on for the whole song. So like it throughout the, I think maybe it filters in and out in the breaks, but there's basically this always this kind of syncopated rhythm atmosphere that came from the tail of a delay, but instead of using a delay, I just used the chopped audio, so it was always constant. So it's almost like having like a vinyl noise or something, or like something constant in the background. But the reason I do that is because when your chords are so dry, you need something to kind of fill the spaces. So instead of filling it with a bunch of reverb and plugins that would add more to the mix, I keep it really dry, but then I have this atmosphere that kind of pokes through in between i also used to use that like you know age-old trance trick of like bouncing a 100 percent wet stem and then side chaining the signal of the reverb to your chord so that in the yeah. spaces of the chord it pops out so i used to do that a lot too but i like my my technique of like creating this atmosphere that just keeps kind of repeating in the background and you can side chain that and it has a cool effect i think that also serves the function of what people use vinyl noise for to kind of fill in the background and some of the high end of a mix, Mm. but it's got a more creative personal touch when you're creating it from scratch. And in your case, grabbing, you know, some of the delay from one of the other sounds and then looping that, manipulating it so that it has that high end fills in the space of the mix, but it's a more interesting texture to give your mix some extra layers and density. Yeah. I think I used camel fat on that too, which has like a really nice bandpass filter. And it just was like, they're linked, so you're basically covering one little spectrum of frequencies and you can just kind of drag it around. And I found this one that kind of like popped in the upper mids to low highs and it just added this really cool, what I call atmosphere. And that kind of stuff is really essential for my music and I, I forget about it a lot where something kind of constant going on in the background, it's almost like a, um, what is the, the term for like a sitar, the, the, the tone that is constant, um, a drone or, you know, something like that, like a drone. Yeah. Um, there's some technical term for that. I forget what it's called. Um, so I think that that is really handy in my music. And yeah, I, I prefer using dry sounds because it's just so much easier to control. Like my my other progressive song called In Reality, there's a lot going on, 
because of that, the use of things like reverb and delay are like really isolated and specific. So like if there's delay on something, it's on like one thing, like just the lead. It's not really on synths and other things going on. And especially like yeah. bass, I never put reverb on bass unless it's for a dramatic effect to like get out of a transition or something. But um, I always keep it bone dry. Do you feel like that's like a personal taste or do you feel um, that's something that you've developed because you feel like it gets you better mixes? I think both. It feels like to me like a big puzzle that is filling in all the space. And even if that space is intentionally like blank space, you know what I mean? And that only happened with like my later progressive stuff. But you can also hear it um, a little bit in one of my more recent songs called I Know. The like only thing that really has reverb on it is the strings that go on in the top. There's like a violin pizzicato lead and uh, or staccato uh, staccato lead. And uh, that's like the only thing that really has like a lot of reverb other than some small chord stuff. But uh, because of that, it has a much more dramatic effect because you can hear that reverb versus just like a bunch of reverbs going on. So if you're going to if you're going to create space, you got to make the space, you know, and that becomes more powerful even when you're doing really subtle things like a really light delay sticks out like crazy if you create this the space for it and it sounds really really nice i think that's a really good point of emphasis having that contrast in your mix mm. i think when people are trying to fill out a big more edm progressive mix they tend to throw reverb on absolutely everything uh, it's because hard they want this like big emphatic mix yeah you get really confused um i, I like i said i i use reverb like as a last resort like if if i can't get it full and it's just like missing some energy like maybe i'll do that like trance trick where you have the 100 percent wet on a different channel and then you sidechain that to the chords so that in the moments yeah. of silence between chords you, it kind of pokes through um but <clears throat> that's like the most i'll do i really like that mentality i think it's good to not rely on reverb and delay in order to fill out a mix it seems like the way that you approach it the further you can get with the synth itself when it's dry the better mm. And yeah. with all the other layers that you have going on in the mix, like those kind of high-end drone textures that you might add in. Yeah, it's funny though because it, it has kind of backfired on me. Like this, uh, this new project I'm working on has a lot of reverby moments, and the the guy I'm doing it with is really good at creating like big spatial reverb stuff. And I'm just like not used to using them at all, so it's like been a bit of a learning curve to like deal with huge tails and like just resonance that go on with having room sounds and yeah so it's it's been interesting good learning experience all right so with that i'm gonna wrap things up you can check out pierce fulton's music in the description for this video definitely give that a listen as this episode is just about over pierce been great chatting with you and wish you all the best thank you so much